Welcome back to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Ryan Rosenthal, joined as always by my co-host Andre Ganoella. And today we are deeply honored and privileged to be joined by the Attorney General for the District of Columbia, Carl Racine. Now, AG Racine is the first elected AG for the district, having held the position since 2015. And prior to being elected as AG, he was an attorney in private practice, staff attorney in DC's Public Defender Service, and associate White House counsel in the Clinton administration, among many other positions. Now, Mr. Attorney General, this is a particular privilege for me. Uh, I am currently in the district as a law student at GW, and so I'm looking forward to today's conversation. Well, thank you, Ryan, um, and I'm thrilled that you're in D.C. Got to say, I love Ann Arbor, uh, having had family and friends who've attended that great university. Go blue, and hopefully we have some success in March Madness uh, this coming week and this coming month. So, Mr. Attorney General, this is Andre Gonoella. Thank you so much for joining us. And I really want to start off this discussion by talking about the events of January 6th. So while much of the day's events took place on federal property and are outside the scope of your office's jurisdiction, how did the insurrection impact the district? And what does, it, what does it tell you about our country's broader political divides? Well, Andre, you've said it best uh, in your question. Uh, while uh, the incidents of January 6th really were focused around the mall um, and the Capitol, um, the fact of the matter is that the District of Columbia was deeply impacted. D.C. residents welcome visitors to our town, as Ryan knows, on a regular basis. We love uh, being part of the federal aspect of D.C., all of the monuments, the museums, and the tourist attractions. We also have a thriving community of Washingtonians well over 700,000 strong with terrific universities, GW, Georgetown, American University, Howard, UDC, to just name a few. And so we expect visitors to treat the District of Columbia with respect. And of course, what's, what happened on January 6th was the absolute lack of respect. It was dishonor, dishonor for our country dishonor for the symbol of our democracy. But I do want to point out a couple things. First, we knew from our experience in the District of Columbia back in December with some of these groups, Proud Boys, Oath Keepers and the like, that they would be up to no good. They were up to no good in December when they came and, and protested and then attacked two DC African-American iconic churches. And so we were bracing ourselves. And as you know, and as you saw on the video, Metropolitan D.C. police officers went into the Capitol and essentially saved the day. God knows what would have happened had the Metropolitan Police Department not gone into the Capitol and provided needed support uh, to the Capitol Hill police. Um, and so there are many, many questions around January 6th. I look forward to getting to that. But it was an awful day in the District of Columbia, an awful day in our nation's history, um, because people came here, and I'm going to emphasize this, seven known hate groups, racist, xenophobic, anti-Semitic, sweatshirts that talked about 
being the staff at Auschwitz. And they came here and they did great damage for which there needs to be redress. So, Mr. Attorney General, let's dig into this a little bit deeper. How exactly is your office working with federal authorities to investigate and prosecute those responsible for these riots? And what exactly does uh, your office's jurisdiction look like with regard to the events of January 6th? Great question. Ryan knows this. Maybe uh, the other listeners do not. The District of Columbia is the only jurisdiction, because we're not a state, that does not have a locally elected prosecutor who's responsible for bringing adult offenses. And of course, there were numerous adult offenses that occurred um, in on January 6th. Our authority, my office's authority, is limited to misdemeanor offenses. For example, violating a curfew. And certainly there were people who violated the 6 p.m. curfew. Having possession of an unregistered firearm or unregistered ammunition is also an OAG misdemeanor offense. And lastly, and interestingly, we have a misdemeanor offense for inciting a riot. And we know that there were people who incited the riot, and we also know that there were people who were speakers in advance of the rush of the Capitol who could also uh, arguably be responsible under that charge. With respect to our work with the U.S. Attorney's Office, we're actively in engagement with them. Um, We just had a new acting U.S. Attorney named last week, Channing Phillips, and so that person is obviously part of the Biden administration. The prior acting U.S. Attorney was part of the Trump administration. I can tell you that my office met with Mr. Phillips last week, And we'll be doing more meeting and talking this week in regards to ways in which our offices can collaborate on the investigation and prosecution of criminal offenses related to January 6th. So you mentioned speakers in the run up to that event. Uh, So is your office actively investigating the legal culpability of current and former elected leaders, such as former President Donald J. Trump? The answer, Andre, is yes. Uh, we have you know, reviewed every single second of videotape uh, just to master the words that were utilized. Um, and we've seen that we've done the same thing with respect to all the speakers. I want to be really clear. The, the charges that we have are misdemeanor offenses. The last thing that I would want to do as a responsible prosecutor is launch a series of misdemeanor offenses that might interfere with more significant felony offenses that the federal prosecutor might bring. And so we are investigating. We have legal theories of potential liability. We wouldn't hesitate to bring such a suit, but at the same time, we don't want to interfere with the more serious felony charges that the federal prosecutor could bring. So, Mr. Attorney General, while much of this conversation takes place at the national level, what, if anything, can our state and local governments do to address the threat of domestic terrorism? Well, this is a a massively important question here. Um, And as you know, uh, I'm the president of the National Association of Attorneys General. uh, And uh, in regards to my being president in this year, my 
presidential initiative is focused on hate. And hate, of course, is a historic phenomenon, uh, certainly uh, in the United States and elsewhere. The first thing we have to do is be educated on it and be honest about it. And that, you know, sometimes causes us to have to go back into our history. And oftentimes, as we know, uh, people aren't so inclined. More willingly, they're apt to say, well, my grandfather wasn't a slave master, or I certainly am not. Why are we still talking about that? Or why are we still talking about the manner in which we've treated Asian Americans? Um, I didn't do it. Well, the reality is that our country needs a reckoning. So education and then denouncing hate crime and domestic terrorism is incredibly important. And it's incredibly important that our political leaders do that. And as you've seen, sadly, too many political leaders are not stepping up to condemn hate groups. You know, I read with uh, with horror, uh, words from the senator from Wisconsin, Ron Johnson, saying that he didn't feel at all threatened uh, by folks who, uh, whose actions resulted in the deaths of five people. But he would have felt threatened if they were Antifa or Black Lives Matters protesters. What does that mean? So we need honesty and we need responsibility and leadership to denounce violence. We also need accountability, and that means holding people in these hate groups accountable. It also means going further and looking at how they're getting their message out and who may be benefiting from that. I, for one, think that we can do more with respect to the internet platforms, uh, Facebook and the like, to get hate off of those platforms. Frighteningly, Facebook actually profited from hate groups in or around the inauguration time by putting up ads that would sell guns, ammunition, whole bunch of other gear right near known hate group dialogue. I think profit needs to take a step back uh, from denouncing hate. So that's what we need, education and then focus on accountability and prevention. I certainly agree. But in that regard, how do we combat hate when so much of it is rooted in individual upbringings and echo chambers, as you mentioned with the social media bit? And we've seen how dangerous hate can be. But is it actually possible to tackle acts of hate before they're taken? I think it's possible. Um, I think it's, uh, it's been done. I think it needs to be done in a more coordinated and strategic way. Here's what we know about most people who fall into hate groups. And I'm just going to put up a book here for you, Andre and Ryan. It's a great book called Breaking Hate. The author is a dear friend named Christian uh, Picciolini. Uh, Christian uh, was part of a white supremacist Nazi, neo-Nazi group for about 15 years, and he made it uh, his, his, his day to beat up and otherwise harm Jews in particular, but also people of color. What Christian and other thought leaders recognize is that people fall into hate as a result of ignorance. 
And oftentimes, they're also lacking a sense of identity, community, and purpose. And what happens? Hate mongers, hate groups, pretty much recruit and prey on these people by giving them what? Scapegoat opportunities. The reason why things aren't going well for you is because of those damn blacks or the damn Jews or the Asian Americans. And so they provide through the hate recruitment, identity, community, and purpose. What we've got to do is combat that and really listen to people who may have been influenced by that, educate them, and let them know that (laughs) hating is not going to make the issues that they've got in their lives any better. Um, And that, in fact, it's going to lead to much more trouble uh, for them. So I do think that we can combat hate. I think it's elemental. You all are highly educated, go to great schools. Here's the deal. We need to teach about our country's history in the schools. That's one way for us to have a reckoning and understanding about our past and what kind of place we want to be in the future. Without a doubt, sir. And I mean, therein lies the the, one of the main problems, and with that, the the problem of technology and social media, which you you kind of hinted at, and we discussed briefly, that of course has has an added element that makes us all the more difficult. And so, sir, in, in your opinion, how has technology and social media impacted hate related violence? Uh, totally amplified it at the least, um, specifically encouraged it um, at worst. And so we know that hate groups, both domestic as well as located and Far off places, Germany, New Zealand, Austria, you name it, folks are communicating and they're getting inspired by each other's hateful conduct. And we see that in the writings of different folks who have written manifestos and the like. And they'll tell you exactly who inspired them. It could have been Dylan Roof, uh, inspired by another hate monger who inspired another hate monger in New New Zealand. And so the online format is a place where people can populate and spread hate. And what we've got to do is, again, be responsible, of course, be respectful of difference of opinion, but nip the hate in the bud. And I think the platforms can do a much better job of doing that uh, than they're doing it now. In fact, most of the platforms actually bar hate speech on their websites. What we don't see, unfortunately, is the self-regulation of their own rules. So, Mr. Attorney General, I want to I want to now move into a conversation on policing and the push for reform. So the US has significant work ahead in dealing with police violence. While some have called for quote unquote defunding the police. Others believe that the police should receive more resources to address systemic problems. Sir, where do you fall on this debate? Well, I don't think the choice is so uh, binary, um, to be honest with you. Um, Here's what I do believe. I believe that we ask our police to do far too much, more than they're trained to do, more than they should do. And I believe that especially in over-policed communities, 
that causes massive distrust, tension, um, and indeed it can cause friction that leads to violence. We also know that we have a significant problem around uh, police shootings, especially shootings of unarmed people of color. And so clearly what we've got to do is reorient our police to a de-escalation mode of policing, um, as opposed to what we're seeing, which is, you know, honestly, a quick trigger approach. If that means more training and more dollars for training, I'm all in for it. If it means less money to the police to deal in a criminal law enforcement way with people who have mental health issues, if it means less money for police to deal with kind of civil disobedient misdemeanor type matters, then I'm up for reshifting the funding from police to counselors and others who can attend to the problems, as I said, of the mental, mentally ill. One place I don't think we need to over-police is in schools. Clearly, certain schools need to have security. I'm up for funding that. But if you talk to students in schools, here's what they'll tell you. They'll tell you they need more counselors, more therapists, more restorative justice professionals so the kids can resolve their issues at school as opposed to criminalizing conduct that occurs in school. So I think it's a more nuanced debate than defund or not. We've got to decide what needs funding, training, hiring, promotion, accountability standards, and what does not. Thank you, Mr. Attorney General. And so this this is certainly a, a national issue, but you, of course, are the Attorney General for the District of Columbia. And so how has your office worked with the Metropolitan Police to address the concerns of the district's citizens? Sure. We've worked really hard. Uh, we had a spate of uh, incidents uh, about 18 months ago uh, where police um, you know, interaction with young people, I'm talking about as young as eight, nine years old, uh, resulted uh, in unfortunate public um, arrests, uh, nine-year-old, 10-year-old kids in handcuffs, only to later be released. And you know what happens when you see anyone in handcuffs today. It's all over social media. And for a kid at 10 who may not have been involved in an, an offense, you know, you're presumed really, really guilty at that point. So we worked really hard with the uh, Metropolitan Police Department to change the manner in which it polices young people. And so the rule now is that, with few exceptions, kids below the age of 13 are not arrested. Moreover, the Metropolitan Police Department engages my office through you know, a, a call center where we have lawyers literally on call all day and all night long to help guide the police in those more difficult uh, interactions with kids. And we've seen through those initiatives that we've not had the kind of interactions that sadly we've seen in Rochester or in Florida, Rochester, New York, or in Florida, you know, where, where you've seen kids being completely, you know, mishandled, um, you know, by the police. Again, why is this important? It's important because 
communities must trust police in order for the community to participate in the criminal justice system. We often hear that community members are reluctant to come and testify before court. Well, studies show that a lot of that resistance relates to overall distrust of the criminal justice system. We can establish trust. Uh, we can bring in a new era of police and community uh, trust and, and safer policing. So you mentioned, I think, certainly the differences between some of the stuff that D.C. is doing and some of the stuff that's happening in Florida and New York, differences in procedures and operations. And, you know, many of the protests following the death of George Floyd were national in scope. These individual instances of police violence are local. So is this actually an issue that can be solved by the national government? Or should the bulk of the work be done at the state and local level where such reforms would actually be felt? It's a brilliant question that you ask, Andre. Um, Here's the truth of the matter. The truth of the matter is, as you said, local and state. Policing and law enforcement comprises 90% of our criminal justice system. The federal government is but 10%. And so at the end of the day, where the rubber meets the road is literally at the state and local level. However, the federal government has a massive opportunity to influence best practices. Why? Because the federal government has a lot of money. And the federal government can use that money to incentivize and encourage better policing at the local and state level. Let me give you an example. Remember, we were talking about hate earlier. um, And hate, of course, also occurs at a local level predominantly. Well, we know that hate crime reporting at the state and local level is porous. It rarely happens. One example, Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017, where over four dozen people were arrested for hate-related offenses. Heather Heyer was killed. Do you know for that year in the official uh, hate uh, crime reporting book, there were zero hate crimes reported out of Charlottesville? Part of the problem is lack of resources, uh, lack of computers, and a lack of incentive uh, to to give people the will to actually report. And the same is true with policing. So the federal government has a huge opportunity to help lead by providing resources. I would commend you, and I've seen your your podcast, listen to them. You've had excellent guests. When it comes to police reform, here's a guest you might consider. Uh, A.G., Graywall from New Jersey is, in my opinion, the country's foremost leader in police reform, having just published a reform mantra months ago in New Jersey. I think that'd be a great show for you. Well, thank you very much for that suggestion. We will absolutely reach out to to the AG. Um, So, sir, one final question before we wrap up today. Uh, At the core of many of the issues we've discussed is the question of values and culture and history. And so while America is a diverse country that should pride itself um, as being so, 
how can we build a common culture of understanding that strives to lift one another up instead of exploiting the areas in which we differ? Yeah, Ryan, I really appreciate uh, you know that question. You know, I think it 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 really calls on us uh, where whatever we're doing, uh, whether we're an elementary school teacher, junior high teacher, a parent, um, to really take a look at how we're spending our time and who we're spending our time with. Put another way, we need to intentionally engage more with each other, so that the commonality that we all have, you know, the desire to to have a challenging and interesting career that pays okay, um, the desire to have a safe park where one's kids can play, um, a great school where one's kids can attend, you know, are those shared values. And I really think that it still is the case that we have far much more in common um, than we don't have in common. And so it's fighting against the temptation to scapegoat and instead fight towards interacting and engaging with other people. I got to tell you, I loved when uh, the presidential candidate, uh, Pete Buttigieg, had a suggestion of like a post-high school, like AmeriCorps type thing, Um, service to our country for a year or two from all over the country where people might have an opportunity to actually engage together um, and thereby see that I'm no better than Ryan, um, but Ryan's a good guy, (laughs) okay? Um, That, I think, is what we need to do, bring people together. On that note, Mr. Attorney General, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for your service, uh, both to your city and, of course, the country, because certainly we'll be hearing from you a lot more, I foresee, in the next few weeks and even the next few years. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, You all are doing a great, great job. I have to tell you, sorry, GW is not in the NCAA basketball attorney. Um, I really love Jawan Howard in the Big Blue. I got them going to the Final Four. Let's go Big Blue. Let's go Blue. <laughs> As do I. <laughs> All the way. All right. Take care. Thank you very much, sir. We appreciate it. To hear other fascinating conversations, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media at Burnbag Pod. Thank you for listening. This is the Burnbag Podcast.